Okay, well, it is the first Thursday of the month when I don't normally give a talk, but just do Q&A. But I found it helpful to have kind of a little seed for you guys. So I'm going to talk for just a little while. Also, I just wanted to share this. Um, I've been considering lately some of the uh, teachings on love and wisdom because they... Can you hear okay if I speak at this volume? I'll turn it up just a little bit more. Yeah, so I've been considering this quote from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj who said, Wisdom is knowing I am nothing. Love is knowing I am everything. And between the two, my life moves. So, it can be a, a genuine question for us. You know, if I have this sense of sometimes being with the wisdom of just things as they are, just being balanced and equanimous and understanding that this is uh, impermanent and not about me, and then also having this sense of love and feeling like, ah, I'm connected to everything, and everything is uh, vibrant, and um, I want to somehow relate smoothly to everything that's going on. And these two things, sometimes people feel like, oh, these are incompatible in some way. But I don't think so. I think they almost blend into each other, as, as the quote says. But then that leaves us with the question, well, how do I live? <laughs> what does it mean that my life moves between the two? Um, how do I live in touch with the things that matter to me, like love and wisdom? And I don't think I have a short answer to that, but there are ways that we explore and engage with our life, and um, these include the realms of livelihood, of um, relationship, and of, if we're so inclined, social action in the world, participating in society in some way. And as I was, just as I was thinking about these different dimensions and how we might consider relating wisely and lovingly, I came across this um, book that was written by a hospice nurse who, of course, had seen many, many people dying. And that was, you know, she talked with them and she, you know, shared some of their uh, final stages with them. And she said that as she talked with people, um, she found that their, what they commented on in this very last part of their life, she found that there were kind of themes. And so she wrote this book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying having kind of collated her research. And so I thought, well, maybe we should look at what people regret when they die in order to understand how to live well. It's not so stupid. So I thought you might be interested to know what these regrets are, since two of them relate to work, three of them relate to interaction with others. <laughs> um, so the ones related to work, are actually the first two. Number one, regret of the dying. 
I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Yeah, I think, think about this when you're lying on your deathbed. And number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. <laughs> right? Jack Cornfield says, nobody lies on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd gone to the office more. They tend to say more things like, you know, I wish I'd loved better or something, spent more time with my family. So, you know, this is worth considering. Now, it's not that we need to um, throw everything out and, you know, I don't know, try to live some fantasy of what we think is true to me. Then it's all about me. And that's, and wisdom points away from it being all about me. So it's more subtle than that. I think the life true to ourselves, if we look more deeply, will be one that includes service, compassion, love, um, connection. And that the when we don't feel true to ourselves is when we've done things like just become a slave to the idea of how we're supposed to do our job, just getting it done, just taking home a paycheck so I can, you know, have fun on the weekends or something. Something that would be true to ourselves would be uh, more integrated in some way. I think that's more what's pointed to. And it also doesn't say that we should just stop working, you know. Um, there are realistic life situations where we have to be in the job that we're in right now. This is, this is what we need to be doing to um, be responsible or have integrity. And so then, of course, there are infinite ways that we can adjust how we do it. We can be true to ourselves in the way that we do our job or in the way that we engage with our livelihood. And by the way, even if you're retired, uh, there's still a matter of livelihood. Livelihood doesn't stop. It's not only about the job. It's about what supports our life. So that includes our use of food, water, plastic, oil, trees, air. What are we using to support this life? And are we using it in a way that is responsible and caring in some way? So we can always adjust how, how we do the livelihood or the work. And then the other Another great area that we explore in how to live well is our interaction and our relationships with others. And the other three regrets of the dying are somehow about that. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. So people get to the end and they realize they didn't quite say everything they wanted to say or express what they wanted to express. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Sometimes at the end we think back 50 years, wow, I wonder what ever happened to him or her. Little moment of happiness to connect. And speaking of that, number five, regret of the dying. I wish I had let myself be happier. It's something about getting to the end and having that look back that we understand it was something we could have allowed, actually. It didn't have to be given by someone else. It didn't have to be that the conditions were better. If, if, if only, if only I had a better roommate, then I could be happy. If only I had 
twice as much income, then I would be happy. And then you get to the end and you realize, I wish I had let myself be happier. It's really possible. I'm suddenly having this flash of Dorothy in in the um, Wizard of Oz where Glenda says, oh, you just click your heels three times, you could always have gone home. <laughs> you know? So, you know, more broadly, we, um, we can use our relationships and, and interactions to explore patterns in our mind and learn to work with them so that we're not suppressing our feelings, but we're being true to those so that we're staying connected and so that we're finding the happiness that's possible in whatever moment we're having. And then there's also this lovely quote from Thomas Merton talking about um, what he felt uh, living in modern society. And you know, for Thomas Merton, modern society was the last century. So we're even more of this now. He said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. He calls this the, the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps it's the most common form of its innate violence. So I find this interesting because, you know, we're given as a value that we should do all these things, we should accomplish, we should um, create, we should build, we should uh, do, commit, help, all these things, all these imperatives. Um, But doing, and these are all good things, but doing too many of them (laughs) becomes a form of violence. And he's deliberately making, I think, a, a strong statement by using the term violence. I mean, obviously it's not the same as what we sometimes read about in the news. But what about psychic violence of various kinds? This is about not being true to ourselves. Number one, regret of the dying. Did we commit too much in this short, finite life? So maybe I'll just conclude my little seed planting with a poem from Rosemary Traumer. It's called Where We Are Headed. At first, we just say flower. How thrilling it is to name. Then it's aster, begonia, chrysanthemum. We spend our childhood learning to separate one thing from another. Daffodil, edelweiss, fern. We learn which have five petals, which have six. We say this is a gladiolus, this a hyacinth. And we fracture the world into separate identities. Iris, jasmine, lavender. Divorcing the world into single bits. And then, when we know how to tell one thing from another, perhaps at last we feel the tug to see not what makes things different, but what makes things the same. 
Perhaps we feel the pleasure that comes when we start to blur the lines. And once again, everything is flower. And by everything, I mean everything. So with that, I will stop and ask if you have questions about the Dharma or about your practice. This first Thursday is when I make space for that. like flowers sitting there. Yeah. Would you be able to say a little more about the I wish I'd let myself be happier? It, it wasn't unclear, I just would like to hear a little more. Okay, so yeah, the question was about the fifth regret of the dying, I wish I had let myself be happier. I think it's a little bit of what I was trying to point at earlier, is that that statement like that uh, tweaks us a little bit, or it can, because we tend to see our happiness as dependent on various things. Um, And ordinary happiness is dependent on various things, on a certain degree of health, maybe a certain mental state of not too much anxiety and not too much disaster unfolding and relationships okay and (laughs) these kinds of things. And if if things get too far off in any of those dimensions, health and relationship and mental state, then we're, we're certain that we're not happy. And so it's, in that sense, it's dependent on there being certain conditions present. And for some people, these include external conditions of the weather, um, other things. And then this a statement like, I wish I had let myself be happier, is that there's, there's an implication that there's a role that we're playing too. And we maybe only realize later that a little bit of our degree of happiness is whether or not we're allowing it. And it's a little bit, um, there's a little bit of chagrin maybe in realizing that, that there's also a dimension of happiness that is based on, am I open to what could be happy right now? You know, what there could be in this situation that is uh, positive. Or maybe I don't need every single one of those external conditions to be fulfilled before I decide, okay, this is, I'm going to be happy. I'm reminded of a recovery group that um, I heard about that people were in, and they met for um, 
a certain, you know, many months or something, and they talked, it was people who were bonded through some kind of a, I don't know the specifics, some kind of a difficult experience that, you know, either it was grief or it was drug addiction or some, something else that um, required the support of a group to really work through, or maybe being a cancer survivor or something like that. And there was a woman at the end and they, uh, who had had a particularly difficult, I mean, among all the people who had a difficult time with this, hers had just been you know, a very tragic situation. And she said during the last meeting, and she'd gone through all the exercises that they'd done and really tried to participate, and she said she just had this realization when, as the group was coming to an end, and she said, I'm going to do something really radical. I'm going to be happy. <laughs> something really radical. <laughs> and, it, you know, what a powerful statement to say, I'm going to be happy, <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of this sense that I'm not happy right now, or if only things were a certain other way, it'd be better. Uh, a lot of that is based on some ideal concept of a perfect life that we're failing at. You know, if I really had it together, I would have a decent job, I would have my relationships would be going well, my body would be in shape, I would uh, be living in a comfortable situation. Nothing fancy, I'm not asking a lot, you know, and we have this kind of lists that we're not aware of in our head and all the time we're checking against it and it doesn't match up and then we say well I'm not happy because this isn't happening but what if we had you know a much more powerful component we could just say well you know I'm happy I'm just going to be happy and you know they can pull out the objection that well they say there's a genetic level of happiness that we need to all have and you don't really go above that even if you win the lottery okay fair enough but we know that meditation is a game changer in terms of mental state or if you don't know that you will <laughs> and um, it really is possible to make some decisions about how happy we're going to be and i think it's really helpful to Consider that before we get to our deathbed. If happiness is of interest to you, it's not a requirement. And of course, there can be, through practice, happiness that's not really based on anything. Happiness without conditions. Which one of those regrets tweaked you the most? And you thought, uh-oh, I better work on that one before the end.
What's the one where it's <clears throat> more like living up to other people's expectations or something like that? Oh, that's the very first one. So that is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. But from, um, there's so many different um, ways of looking at that morally. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a huge moral um, uh, question. Because I don't know where these people. I mean, obviously they're older, so they must have acquired some wisdom. And you're at the end of life. Maybe they had pieced together what they thought was uh, the right conduct or way of living their lives. But um, that's something that I mean, from our from perspective, from Buddhist perspective, would be we would live our lives in accordance with the best practices we could possibly live to. But. Um, yeah, we might not use the word myself in that, but um, right. there's something we can be true to, uh, which may be different from societal expectations. Right. We're very much encouraged to not buy into, simply because they're there, <laughs> the societal expectations. But I, I want to address what you said about the ethical concerns. Uh, can you say more clearly what your concern is there? Well. Um, there are there are many ways to be in the world, and as persons trying to put that together, it just seems like the ethical. There's so many different ethical systems you could use, and there's just innumerable models you could base your conduct on if you're opening it up to everybody, not just people who are practitioners of Theravada Buddhism. I actually find the ethical systems are the ones that are the most similar between all the different schools of spirituality and religion. They all pretty much say, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't lie. Which are the first four precepts, and then there's usually other ones. But, um, then there's the interpretation of that. And how sure. That each person is on their own path. Mm. So that's where that whole my mind. But I, I think I, I just have to, if, I mean, from my perspective, ethics, uh, Buddhist ethics, where, where is, um, you know, as I experience phenomena and I try to keep on um, living to my ideal, what I think is the best for me. But there's, it just so, it seems like it changes, even that ideal kind of changes a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you're learning that um, there isn't really an absolute standard of ethics, and there are religions that say that there is, but this one doesn't because it's uh, experientially based. And it's still fairly clear <laughs> the ethics. Um, and you're right, it comes down to feeling in the moment what feels like the right thing to do. And we can't, if we're not completely awake, we will make mistakes in that realm because we're not totally wise. And so part of living the path, that is the way we live before we're awake, we live the path, 
is dealing with that. The fact that we don't live up to whatever theoretical ideal there is, others don't. How do I live with that? And that's part of this being true. Um, basically, the ethics are non-harming, and that's the principle that's being upheld. Is am I is what I'm doing not causing harm to myself or others or both? And that can end up being a different standard. That can end up being a different behavior than what a rule says. And sometimes not to harm is a little different. And so, yeah. How we live with that is an interesting question. But if we say true to myself, we could mean true to our deeper you know, heart path, something like that. Um, we might need to do things in ways that don't look conventional. There was a person who started learning about the path uh, who was a lawyer. And he came to, this was a, t- a story that my teacher tells, because he was learning basic meditation, he was doing a six-week course or whatever, and he learned about ethics, and he learned that he wasn't supposed to lie, and, you know, not that he was a flagrant liar, but he thought about it in the context of his life, and he realized that the way his job as a lawyer was structured was that there were times when he made calculated lies about things uh, in order to do his job. And so he went to my teacher and he said, well, I'm expected to lie in my job. This is just how it goes in this profession. Uh, How can I continue to do this and also not lie, fulfill this precept? And my teacher wanted to challenge him a little bit, so he said, you can't. You can't. What you're doing is lying. You can't change it into something else. So then he had a decision to make. Well, is it non-harming the way I do this? Or is it harming because of the very fact that I'm lying? I don't know that there's a single answer to that. I don't think I can say absolutely that guy should have quit his job the next day. Or, well, he was defending children and what he was doing was, in the end, positive. That's something he had to decide based on his makeup his path, where he was in his understanding. Um, yeah, absolute ethics are, in the end, possibly immoral. That's a bold statement. Yeah. Um, definitely the two that really jumped out at me and are mm. staying with me are really connected with each other. Um, the theme of not being true to ourselves yeah. and also not expressing our feelings. It's yeah. very much connected. They are. I'm not being true to myself, I'm suppressing my feelings. Yeah, or you're and giving in to what others expect, how others expect you to be. Just the conditioning yeah. of this is how I'm, this is how I'm supposed to do life, you know, and, and the challenge of realizing and accepting, I don't see, I don't, I don't want those things. Those things aren't important to me. And making that okay in mm-hmm. the midst of a culture that says this is what you're supposed you're supposed to want the house and the relationship and the career and the da 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 da. And so trying to fit the square peg into the round hole and and um, you know I ha- I have I always envy people that say they don't have any regrets because I have tons of regrets and 
I'd have to think about it, but offhand, I mean, many, if not most of them embody that theme of not being true to myself. There's this theme of my, my intuition saying, I know this isn't right, but whether that's, you know, a schooling path or a relationship or a job, I know this isn't right, but mm -hmm. I'm going to do this anyway. And, and then the talk about ethics makes me realize that fits, that fits in too, because if I'm not being true to myself, I'm not being true to others, which means I'm, I'm it's a little different than a concrete direct lie, but it's, it's, I'm being disingenuous. So mm -hmm. I'm being disingenuous in relationships and I'm hurting myself and I'm hurting others mm -hmm. by not being true to myself. So really for me, being true to myself is the most ethical way to do it. Exactly. And I wanted to touch on, just mention one other thing you said about, um, that I thought was re really interesting about, you know, we have this idea of, you know, we have a concept in this culture of conditional love and unconditional love. And when you said that about happiness without conditions, we don't really have that concept in this culture. We, we, we are absolutely taught happiness comes when conditions are met. So I just thought that isn't that interesting that we we do have a concept of this thing called unconditional love, but we we aren't really presented with this possibility, except maybe in Buddhism, of unconditional happiness. It's interesting given how devoted we claim to be to happiness. It's written into our constitution that we have the right to pursue happiness. Pursue, and we're always pursuing. <laughs> but we keep pursuing it. We never actually get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, um, that's also very well said. And, and it's interesting to, yeah, to consider for ourselves, what would, what would happiness really be for me? And if it relies on things that are outside of your control, that doesn't sound so good. <laughs> so we look more carefully at what, what, what would really make us happy. And a lot of it has to do with being true, being ethical, feeling that we've done that. And there are also kinds of happiness that come through training the mind and knowing that our mind is reliable. You know, it's, I'm not going to get triggered. I can't get pulled into an argument. Um, that w would be, you know, if you really had that assurance, what a great happiness you know, to know that your mind was reliable in that way. So that's what we developed through meditation. And then there's the deep happiness of knowing uh, how things really work. And, and being able to live in alignment with the Four Noble Truths. It's interesting how complicated humans make it. And, you know, I, I really love animals, and I, I have a dog that I dog sit once a week, and a stick is all it takes. And he is <laughs> so happy. A stick, a ball. And so I think we can learn a lot from other species of, like, make it simpler. Simpler is definitely a step in the right direction. You have a lot more potential for happiness than a dog does, though. So all that power that's being used to, to complicate things and make you unhappy, um, it can be, you don't just have to neutralize it to zero, it can actually be reapplied in other directions to bring greater happiness than is possible for simpler minds. But simplifying the complex part is a good first step.
Thanks for your insights. That was all really good. Yeah, I was thinking about saying something, and this often happens when I practice. It happened a lot during the retreats over the summer, and coming from a really deep place, and just ask a simple question, and just say it, make a simple statement. My heart would beat faster than I would have ever experienced it. Um, well, just adrenaline, right? But yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. Sitting at the practice this morning, listened to a talk about Lompa Pasano. His mention of continuity during the practice. Um, found that very obvious in practice uh, at the moment to really maintain a sense of continuity uh, in the morning. Yeah, so um, continuity of mindfulness is what allows the development of wisdom. So um, it would be what would allow us to see these things that the dying people are seeing only with the clarity of mind that comes from death. I'm now projecting that on, but I've seen that from having done hospice work is that when other parts of your life are kind of falling away, you get this clarity about it. And we can achieve the same thing before that with continuity of mindfulness. You know, with actually taking enough data continuously, if you want a scientific analogy, um, that we can uh, see the pattern. If you just observe for, you know, two seconds here and ten seconds there and one second there, and then I forget for three hours and then I try to meditate, and you, you just get this kind of scattered points, it's hard to put together the picture of what's actually going on. Whereas if we just commit to being present, even if it's not very interesting, even if it's not very pleasant, that's the hard part is we tend to just, as soon as it's unpleasant, we're gone. But if we have that continuity through it, then we can watch how things arise and pass and change and shift, and we get a, a much better sense of how to interact with the world in a way that's not going to bring uh, suffering ourselves and others. So I think that's very good and very ancient wisdom that he's sharing in that. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.